Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 106, Henslow's Diary. Last time, Thomas Kidd gave the Elizabethan audiences their first real taste of a blood and guts revenge tragedy. That was a genre that went on to become very popular in the period, but there was much more than just that to the Elizabethan plays. Comedies, histories or chronicle plays, and tragedies without the bloody revenge were all performed in the London playhouses, with, at times, morality and mystery plays still making an occasional appearance too. The London playhouses provide an ever-changing rotation of plays, old and new, to satisfy public demand, changing their offerings almost daily. We have the detail about the way a London playhouse functioned, thanks, in a large part, to one document. Theatre owner Philip Henslow kept a record of many aspects of his enterprise at the Rose Theatre, from 1591 to 1609. A large part of the diary comprises of daily records of the takings at the box office, which plays were performed, if they were new or revivals, and various other details about expenses, costumes and matters relating to the running of the rows. The term diary is misleading, but has stuck since it was coined by its Victorian editor, John Payne Collier, who published his version of the manuscript under the auspices of the Shakespeare Society in 1845, after the manuscript was discovered in Edward Allen's papers held at by Dulwich College, the school that he founded. The document is not the meticulous day-to-day record that diary implies, and it is subject to many vagaries, gaps and incomplete statements that lead only to speculation. But, nevertheless, it is the best record that we have of theatre activity in the period and adds a huge amount to our understanding of the Elizabethan playhouse and the activities that went on within its wooden walls. One of the main points of interest in the diary is the record of the takings for each play, but unfortunately we can't take these numbers at face value. We don't know the distribution of the cheaper standing capacity relative to the more expensive seats, or if the numbers represent the entire income or just Henslow's share of it after other sharers had been given their due. There have been many theories about how to read the figures and how we can extrapolate attendance numbers from them, but really all we can do with certainty is assume that they are expressed in a consistent way throughout the diary and look at them comparatively. One of the things that leaps out from Henslow's diary is just how often different plays were presented and, as a consequence, the vast knowledge of plays that the company needed to have. To illustrate this, and to give you a flavour of the detail of the diary, I've selected two periods that the diary covers more or less at random. The first is Christmas 1594 into January 1595. As it is today, the Christmas period was a popular time for theatre, despite the short days and often cold and wet weather in England at that time of year. At this time, Elizabeth had been on the throne for 36 years. The unnerving events around the execution of her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, was eight years in the past, and any threat to the country now seemed to come from Spain, who were resurgent after defeating the English navy in 1589. An expedition into France three years later had also been a failure, and what was to become a nine years' war in Ireland had kicked off the previous year. For all of these troubles, 
Elizabeth was secure on her throne, and London was a thriving and confident city. At the Rose Theatre, the Admiral's men were busy entertaining all who came to the theatre, with a mixture of comedy, history and tragedy. Immediately prior to the New Year, the company had had a few days off for the Christmas season. There were no performances after the 20th of December, when they closed the theatrical year with a performance of Christopher Marlowe's Dr Faustus. In the preceding days, they had played other Marlowe plays. Dr Faustus takes receipts of 18 shillings, which are relatively poor takings, even for this midwinter time of year, but it is a play they return to often. Part 2 of Tamburlaine the Great took 46 shillings just a day earlier. The currency here is British pounds, shillings and pence, which now seems a wonderfully quirky currency. This system was in existence until 1971, when the currency was decimalised. For those of you too young to remember or resident abroad, all you need to know is that a British pound was divided into 20 shillings, and one shilling was divided into 12 pennies. In addition to this, there were further subdivisions of pennies and, fortunately, the guinea, that's one pound and one shilling, or 21 shillings, wasn't minted until 1663, so we don't need to be further confused by those. Values were expressed either as a shilling amount or pounds and shillings, pretty interchangeably and without any particular formula as far as I can see. So, as a quick guide, two pounds and two shillings could be expressed as 42 shillings and mean exactly the same thing. I know, it's confusing, but I'll follow the way Henslow and his scribes expressed it in the diary. After the Christmas break and the success of Tamburlaine Part 2, the next performance was on the 26th of December, the traditional St Stephen's Day holiday. The company plays The Grecian Comedy, which elsewhere is called The Grecian Lady. Unfortunately, we know nothing else about this play. It takes a very respectable 46 shillings, which may have more to do with the fact that it was a holiday day than the quality of the play, but it's one that makes a regular reappearances in the repertoire. The following day, a play called The Siege of London is presented and takes a stonking three pounds and three shillings. Income like that suggests that the theatre was all but full. We don't know which Siege of London is represented in this play, but it was probably the 1016 siege by Canute, the Danish king who interrupted Anglo-Saxon rule for a couple of generations, or the 1471 siege by Thomas Neville, fighting for the Lancastrian cause during the War of the Roses. Both events appear in other plays of the period. What was becoming a good Christmas season for the company, in terms of income, continued on the 28th with another performance of Dr Faustus, which took 52 shillings, a good showing for this oft-repeated, but at other times underperforming, play. The 28th was another holiday for the Feast of the Holy Innocents, perhaps explaining another large crowd, although the subject matter of the play hardly seems appropriate for a religious day. The 29th was Sunday, when theatre performances were not allowed, so the next play was on the 30th, when The Wise Man of West Chester took £3 and 2 shillings. That play, which is lost but was about an English wizard, had been shown in early December to much lower takings, so maybe the Christmas holiday effect could draw the crowd to a play that was otherwise of lesser interest. 
Perhaps on a holiday day, the crowds came to see whatever was on and were not particular about what they saw or indeed if they had seen it before. New Year's Eve saw a performance of Marlowe's Tamburlaine the Great Part 1, but it only took 22 shillings. This must have been a disappointment as performances earlier in the year had been much more successful. The diary gives no indication of why the audience failed to roll up for this performance. Perhaps the weather was particularly bad. Perhaps there were other events being held in the local pleasure gardens for the holiday season or some other reason. Because strangely, the second part of Tamburlaine draws a good crowd on the next day and takes £3.02. That might be explained by the fact that this play had only had one previous outing, whereas part one had been seen many times in 1594. At this point, we get one of the diary's many quirks. Confusingly, Henslow still dates the 1st of January as 1594. He was using the old dating system, where the year started in late March, in line with the growing season. But by the Elizabethan period, the 1st of January was thought of as New Year's Day, much as we still do today. Perhaps this is an example of his sloppiness in record-keeping that was very annoying to John Payne Collier as he edited the diary centuries later. But Henslow was 45 years old at this point and perhaps stuck in some old ways. Although there are still six days of the official Christmas holidays left, the audiences reduce over the next few days. On the 2nd of January, a play called The Set at Moor, a play about a game of cards, takes only 24 shillings. And the next day, something called The French Doctor takes slightly less at 21 shillings. On the 4th, Valia and Antony takes only 11 shillings. Clearly, this play was no draw, and perhaps this is why it has sunk without trace. Literally, we know nothing else about it. The 6th of January is the last day of Christmas and the Feast of the Epiphany. As one of the most important holidays in the church calendar, we might have expected a big popular performance today, but there's nothing in the diary. Fortunately, we know from court records that the Admiral's men were called on to perform for the Queen to fulfil a long tradition of a professional performance for the Queen on Twelfth Night, which was undertaken by different troops each year. There is a record of payments by the Lord Chamberlain that says, To Edward Allen, Richard Jones and John Singer, servants of the Lord Admiral, upon the council warrant dated at Whitehall the 15th of March 1594 for three several comedies of interludes shown by them before Her Majesty in Christmastide past year, viz. the 28th of December, on New Year's Day and Twelfth Day, 22 shillings, and by way of Her Majesty's reward, £10 in all. So we can see from this that on two other occasions, the 28th of December and New Year's Day, the actors performed at the Rose and then made their way, presumably by boat on the Thames, to perform for the Queen at the court later in the day at Greenwich Palace. On the 7th of January, the takings were 22 shillings for the moralistic comedy A Knack to Know an Honest Man. This play turns up in the repertoire occasionally and on this performance the takings are quite reasonable. This is the point where the Christmas season is truly over and takings return to more normal levels. On the 9th it was Dr Faustus again, but it only took 22 shillings on this occasion, less than half of what it took in the holiday season. 
Perhaps more than a little disappointing, last year it seemed that the punters would never tire of this play. On the 10th, the Grecian comedy returns and takes 28 shillings, and on the following day we had Tasso's Melancholy. It's lost now, but it was a fairly new play in 1595, having been first presented the previous year. Tasso was a famous and still living poet of the time. In fact, he died in April 1595. His epic poem, Jerusalem Delivered, was first published in an English translation in 1595, so the play may have been a response to him being in the zeitgeist at the time. He was known for his melancholic character and ardent love of an unobtainable noblewoman, which drove him into spasms of violent madness. There was a vogue for plays featuring mad or almost mad protagonists at the time. Think of Hamlet and Titus Andronicus and the Spanish tragedy. So the play was very much on trend. It had taken good receipts the preceding August when it was first presented, but could only manage 20 shillings on a presumably cold and dull day in January. Next came A Knack to Know an Honest Man, getting its second showing and taking a very respectable 33 shillings. The Siege of London takes 28 shillings, and The Return of the Wise Man of Westchester takes the surprisingly large amount of £3, much more than on its previous outings. There's no indication as to why this play has suddenly become popular. The Return of the Set at Moor comes next and takes 25 shillings, and then we see another return of the Roman Civil War play Caesar and Pompey. The company had played it last in early November the previous year, so perhaps it didn't go down too well then, but they thought it worth another go. It took 25 shillings, which was more than on its first showing. The 18th of January saw the last ever performance of The Rangers' Comedy at the Rose. This is a lost play, but it has a strange history at the Rose. It was very successful on its first performances and was periodically repeated to similar success, but then declined in popularity until the players left it out of the repertoire until this final performance, some three months after it had been last shown. Even here, it only takes a poor 15 shillings, so perhaps this was its death knell. Without knowing the content of the play, we can only guess at why it fell out of favour with the public at the time. The mad poet Tasso returns on the 21st, taking 36 shillings, with more of London Under Siege on the 22nd, taking 32 shillings. The wise man of Westchester gets another outing on the 23rd and takes £3.06. This seems to have become a really popular play. Takings have been up all week, maybe the weather has improved or there's a bit of a bounce back after the audience stayed away from the theatre in the week after Christmas. Whatever the reason, The Wise Man of Westchester seems to be a real hit. Conversely, takings for the next performance of Dr Faustus at 24 shillings must have been another disappointment. The Grecian comedy then returns, but to a disappointing 15 shillings. What appealed at Christmas was much less of an attraction in January, it would seem. Fortunately, the following day's Tamburlaine doubled these takings and another return of The Set at Moor, that comedy something to do with a card game, almost did the same. Next, we get the second part of Tamburlaine, which took 47 shillings. For some reason, the second part is always more popular than the first. Then, the company decided to revive The French Doctor. 
This play is a mystery. Firstly, it's lost, so we can only speculate about its contents. The consensus is that it was probably a comedy and that the French doctor may have been a common trope at the time, a purveyor of poisons or love potions. Plenty of scope for comedy there, perhaps some of it quite crude, and of course a poke at the French and their funny, untrustworthy ways. However, the real mystery is why the company keeps reviving this one, which they had done at irregular intervals over the preceding years. It never took good box office, just 18 shillings in this case. So why did they keep bringing it back? Someone must have believed in it and persuaded Henslow and Allen that this time it would be a smash. Very strange. But January ended on a pretty good note, with the return of the Grecian comedy taking 28 shillings. And all that in just over a month. I think we can all admire the work rate of these actors. As you can see, the diary is detailed on the day-to-day activity at the theatre, and really the only thing it lacks is some contemporary commentary on the reasons for the popularity or otherwise of a particular play, and details about the casting. Now, let's banish the cold of January and move on to see what was happening at the Rose in summer. Naturally, a more popular time for theatre-going, we would assume, for a theatre open to the elements. In July 1596, the summer is in full swing in London. The harvest season was a busy time and led to many people leaving the city to find casual work in the fields. But this isn't quite at its height yet, and as trades and professions outside of agriculture had developed in the preceding couple of hundred years, fewer city dwellers made the annual migration to the fields. In England, the climate then, as now, means that summer grain crops that were the subsistence food for the population were ripe for harvesting from late July and through August, depending on the exact weather conditions in that year. The warmer, even hot weather, could make life for the outdoor theatre easier, but things in the theatrical world of Elizabethan London were never straightforward, as is the case in 1596. The July diary opens with a paradox, or more correctly, with paradox. This is a new play and takes 45 shillings at the box office, which, as you will know by now, is not a bad income. An average take at the Rose was between 30 and 35 shillings, and we think something above the £3 mark, or 60 shillings, means that the theatre was full or very close to full. This is the only time that this play is performed, so despite the apparent decent takings, something must have put Henslow and Allen off further performances. The play is lost, so we have no idea of its content, but the title suggests that it could have been a puzzle play, some sort of who done it or why did it. Later in the year, the troupe performed a play called Crack Me a Nut, another lost play where the title suggests that the whole point of the piece was a problem that needed to be solved. Perhaps Paradox was also in this mould. Throughout the diary, we see plays detailed that are now lost, and we will cover quite a few of them just looking at the activity in the theatre for one month. So why have so many been lost? Well, the answer is a relatively simple one. Broadly, those plays that made it into print have survived, and the majority of those that only existed in manuscript copy did not. Of course, there are exceptions to this. Printed copies now lost, and manuscript copies that have miraculously survived. But in the main, 
If a play was printed, then there were multiple copies in circulation, certainly hundreds and in some cases thousands, which greatly increased the chance of the survival of individual copies compared to those in manuscript copy only, where there would only have been a very small number of copies. Printing was still relatively new, so something had to be pretty special and commercially viable to be taken on by a printer. On July the 2nd, the Admiral's Men performed Troy, a play that they first performed at the end of June to an almost full theatre. However, this quick return doesn't pay off and takings are only 24 shillings. The sack of Troy was a popular subject at the time, as it has remained so, but there is no record of why this play failed on this occasion, when expectations for it must have been high. And when in doubt, bring back an old favourite. Dr Faustus fits the bill, except it never seems to be that popular, even though it hasn't been seen for three weeks in the repertoire. It takes only 14 shillings. Dr Faustus was written sometime between 1589 and 1592 and was enormously popular early in its life. The Admiral's men first performed it at the Rose in early October 1594. This was probably seen as a major revival at the time and in three years the players performed the play 24 times. On the first showing, the box office took £3.12, which makes the recent 14 shillings look a bit pathetic. In the original production, Edward Allen had taken on the title role, but lost access to it when he joined Lord Strang's men. With the rebooting of the Admiral's men, which I covered when discussing the playing troops, further performances by him became possible, and it seems that initially, at least, he and the play were a real draw. But this didn't last. This is pure speculation, but I wonder if this was such a favourite role of Allen's that he insisted on its continued performance despite the lukewarm audience attendance. On the 5th, the company tried Focus. This play was about the life of the Byzantine emperor who started as a soldier and worked his way up to the highest position in the empire. He usurped the imperial throne from the incumbent, Morris, in 602 and then became a steadily more tyrannical leader as time progressed. He, in turn, was overthrown in a coup by Heraclius. The play is lost, but we can speculate that it might have enjoyed playing with the inevitability of a usurper's downfall, and could have included exotic settings and many a gory death. Although it did quite well on its opening performance at midsummer, it is less than successful now, taking only 22 shillings. On the same day, Henslow also mentions that he has paid the annual fee for the theatre licence to the master of the roles. On the 6th, The Siege of London is revived. Having done well the previous December, it disappoints now, after a long gap, taking only 15 shillings. The long gaps between performances of this play raise questions about how the players handled the relearning of parts, if parts changed between the actors after a hiatus, and exactly why they kept returning to this one, despite some poor takings latterly. The following day, the wise man of Westchester returns for its more or less monthly outing. This old favourite performs surprisingly badly with the box office, taking 16 shillings. We have to wonder if the weather was again playing its part. Perhaps July was unusually cold or wet. Given the English climate, that is perfectly possible. There's no other obvious reason for these continued low takings. 
On the following day, they try the second part of Tamar Cam, which was first performed in April 1592. It is the first time that the second part has been played as a standalone production and not directly following the first part on the previous day. The play is lost, but the partial outline of part one of the play has survived, so we have some idea of its content. Together, the two parts probably tell the story of Hugalu Khan, the Mughal warlord who was the grandson of Genghis Khan and ruled from 1256 to 1265. I say probably because the names don't quite fit. Cam was the English rendering of Khan, but other than that, the rest is guesswork. Next to his grandfather, the story of Hugalu Khan was one of the best known of the period. Under his command, the Mongol army expanded the empire into modern-day Iran, putting Baghdad to siege and weakening the influence of Damascus in the Islamic world. His victories had dynastic implications for the region for centuries to come. It's quite likely that this play was created to emulate the success of Marlowe's Tamblaine the Great, which had been a hit since the 1580s. And as such, Tamar Cam would have been about the ambitions of a great man and the depth of their eventual fall. Leading man Edward Allen had created the role of Tamburlaine and for a time at least, having moved troops, would no longer have been able to perform the role. So this play being created as a way for him to recapture something of that great part is a real possibility. The prospect of the great actor replicating one of his great roles must have been a draw. But for all of this on this occasion, the play can only muster 23 shillings at the box office. At this point, Henslow manages to misdate the diary, and until the end of the month, we are five days off from the correct date. I've amended the dating for our purposes here. On the 9th, the French doctor returns for another unpopular visit, taking only 14 shillings, and it's followed the next day by the usually reliable blind beggar of Alexandria, but on this occasion it disappoints with 17 shillings taken. A third showing of Troy proved to be a bit more successful than a few days ago, taking a close to average 29 shillings. The first part of Tamar Cam takes 14 shillings the next day, but the players don't follow this with the recently played second part. On the 14th, the players give what was to be their last performance of Longshanks, which we presume was a historical drama about Edward I. This play had been well received for over a year since its premiere, but now it can only manage 15 shillings. They then go for more historical drama with Henry V on the next day. As before, we assume this is another outing for not the Shakespearean play, but an earlier version of the famous king and his exciting story, displaying how the young pleasure-loving prince turned into a serious king who bashed the French. For an Elizabethan audience, what's not to like? Unfortunately, not many turn up to relive the glory today, and the box office rattles with only 14 shillings. The question of how much relearning actors had to do comes up again when Belin Dunn is brought back after an 18-month absence. These actors must have had amazing skills of retention and recall. Just think how many plays they were performing on a semi-regular basis. But after 18 months, surely a big amount of refreshing was required. It was worth whatever effort it took, because the play rakes in 35 shillings, which is the best day at the Rose from a financial point of view for some time. 
The play is another lost one, but we can assume that it was about a notorious robber who terrorised travellers near Dunstable during the reign of Henry I. The stories about him had become semi-legendary over the intervening 400 years, but always portray him as an out-and-out baddie who is defeated by the efforts of the king. So he is very much opposite of the Robin Hood type of character, and we assume the characterisation in the play would have played on his wickedness with a huge cheer from the audience when he got his comeuppance, which, depending on which version of the story you have, was decapitation or the removal of all his limbs one by one. In the listing of plops and costumes that also features in the diary, there is mention of Belin Dunn's stable. One feature of Dunn's story is that he kept his horses and booty in a large cave in the forest. So it seems that this production included a plop cave. Maybe we could even call it some additional set. The next performance was on the 19th, the return of A Toy to Please Chaste Ladies. A lost play, presumably a light comedy. As on its previous outings, the takings are abysmal, just ten shillings, the lowest taking for the summer season. They follow this with the return of Pythagoras, a lost play but assumed to be about his philosophical ideas rather than his now more famous geometric theories. This is the last recorded performance, which is a bit surprising. Today it takes 22 shillings, which is typical of the 12 performances it has had since its premiere in January. Not spectacular, but a solid performer. And yet it doesn't return. Seemingly a strange decision, while other less successful plays continue to be revived. Another finale comes on the 21st, this time for Henry V, the not Shakespearean version. It also takes 22 shillings, and is also not seen again perhaps soon to be overtaken by the more famous version that does stand the test of time. The final performances continue the following day, with Troy given its last for 21 shillings. On the 23rd, Focus receives its seventh and last performance, taking 29 shillings. And then, amidst all of this ending, a new play, The Tinker of Totnes. It takes £3, but it's never performed again. We have no idea what the lost play is about, but at the time, itinerant tinkers, repairers of anything in metal and tin, had a reputation as dishonest characters in a rascally sort of way. So why this apparent clear-out of the repertoire from Paradox to the Tinker? Why is a play with a very successful opening, like The Tinker of Totnes, never shown again? Well, some of this is with the benefit of hindsight. At the time, Henslow and his players didn't know that these were the final performances for the plays that I've mentioned, but events overtook them. On the 22nd of July, the Privy Council ordered the closure of theatres, saying that they had sent letters to the justices of Middlesex and Surrey to restrain the players from showing or using any plays or interludes in the places usual about the City of London, for that by drawing of much people together, increase in sickness is feared. The closures were a pre-emptive move born out of the fear of a return of the summer plague that had decimated the population of London two years previously. The theatres remained closed until late October and the Admiral's men went on tour, bringing the English summer of 1596 to a premature end, theatrically speaking at least. 
It was only on their return in October that the troupe decided not to perform some of these plays again. The reason for why individual plays were dropped isn't known, but three months on tour, as the seasons changed from summer to autumn and you lived in fear of an illness that could take you off in a matter of days, probably did give you plenty to think on, and even good reason to welcome the cold of winter and the opportunities that a new season in the theatre would hold. So there is a flavour of Henslow's diary, with all of its uncertainties and the questions it raises rather than answering. At times, it is only a little glimpse into the world of the Rose, but good for Henslow for keeping the records that he did. If you'd like to hear more from Henslow's diary, then head over to www.patreon/thoetp, where you can find more special episodes devoted to the content of the diary. Next time, I'm going to be looking at the life and works of another Elizabethan playwright and man of letters, Thomas Decker, who was at the very heart of London playwriting in the early 1660s, so much so that he is often referred to as London's playwright. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group and find the podcast on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with new episodes and other theatre-related stuff. You can find details of ways to support the podcast at the website, which is www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. It's only me here keeping the podcast going, so any encouragement or support is very gratefully accepted. If you do feel able to help out with the cost of running the podcast, then please head on over to Patreon, where you can find additional content, including Henslow, Edward Allen and Rose Theatre-related material, for a small monthly fee or a one-off donation. You can also find all the details about that on the website. I look forward to your company next time, but if you do have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can always contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 